Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. wasn't as easy as we all hoped, was it? Welcome into the latest episode of the Believe in Oregon Ducks football podcast. I am your host, as always, Joel Gunderson, and today's episode is going to be a little bit different. I was actually under the weather yesterday, so not only is this episode a day late in going out, but will also be more of a question and answer as we will not have a guest. However, Thursday's episode will is that one will be all about the big upcoming Oregon-Ohio State matchup. We'll go full details into it. Uh, But I just want to give a few thoughts from myself on this past Saturday's game, season opener against Fresno State. First off, I was actually able to attend the game as a fan and not a media member, which was great. It was very important for me to be at Autzen for the first time since 2019 in the way I had always been there, and that meant sitting amongst the faithful sweating and choking on the smoke, as it turned out. Uh, But I thought the crowd was actually really quite impressive, considering those factors. When you had in the masks, you had the the heat, which by the end of the game was quite suffocating, it felt like. Uh, And then the smoke, which was a real issue heading into most of the first half, where actually the the air quality index almost made it to where the game was about ready to be canceled if, we got, if it got any worse. But luckily, it subsided after halftime, and, and it was able to uh, fans and players were able to have a much more enjoyable experience. But the crowd was vital, especially late in the game, and was directly responsible for at least two Fresno State false start penalties, uh, the last of one, which literally helped win the game for Oregon. If you remember, after Brandon Dorless' sack on the Bulldogs' final drive, made it 4th and 10, the crowd was at its loudest, and then they caused another false start, making it 4th and 15, and Fresno State got 14 yards on the next play, handing the ball back to Oregon, ran out the clock, escaped the win. So the crowd was great. And look, Oregon didn't play well. Not one coach or player has said different since the game, and there are a lot of factors that go into that. And these are not excuses, they're just facts. A, this was Fresno State's second game to Oregon's first. That makes a huge difference, especially with such small amounts of hitting now that are allowed during fall camps by the NCAA, which is a good thing, safety first. But the reality is when these guys get to games, they have not had much actual take-to-the-ground contact. And it takes a while to get used to being hit again. In Fresno State, they were able to get all of that out of the way when they opened the season against UConn last week. Obvious joke, I don't know how much UConn actually tackled them or hit them, 
but I digress. Still Fresno State's second game. They were ready. Oregon looked like it was their first game. The second thing, Fresno State is actually a very good team. They're a senior-dominant team. They're very big up front on the defensive line. Looking at uh, looking actually ahead at the media guides, Fresno State is one of the biggest offensive lines Oregon will face all year. And they have a coach in Kalen DeBoer who will not be there for long because this is a big-time coach who Fresno State was A, lucky to get, and B, will be leading a Power 5 program very soon. Now, from Oregon's side, upon second look, I rewatched the game. I thought the defense actually played better than it seemed in the moment. The second and third quarters were not great. But overall, I thought Oregon's defense actually came out looking pretty good. And the reality is that if Kayvon Thibodeau had been able to play the whole game, he was injured in the first quarter with the ankle sprain, this wouldn't have been close. Because when he was in there, this looked like a dominant defense. We saw in those few series that he was able to play just how good he will be. I mean, we, we all assume that he would take the next step. If you're going to be a top five pick, likely the number one pick in the NFL draft, you expect the, the next leap to come. He has made it. And when he went out with that ankle sprain, which, by the way, it, it will not keep him out against Ohio State, even though Oregon's coaching staff, Mario in particular, they won't say it this week. They're going to keep it under wraps, but he's going to play. There's nothing that will keep him out of this game. When he went out, Oregon's lack of pass rush uh, was the talking point, but I disagree a little bit because Brandon Dorless, as I mentioned earlier, he ended up being the highest graded interior defensive lineman in the country. And while they couldn't really bring Jake Hayner down as, for a sack, uh, Fresno State's quarterback, he was constantly being flushed from the pocket. So Oregon was getting penetration. They just weren't bringing him down. They weren't finishing the job, but they were close and they were making him scramble. And he took some big hits during the game. Those things will be ironed out, though. And with the linebackers, Noah Sewell and Justin Flo making as many plays as they did, when you add Thibodeau back into the mix, as well as Jamal Hill and DJ James, both of whom will be back this week in the secondary after their suspension, I'm not worried about Oregon's defense. Justin Flo had 14 tackles in his first ever game. And he's just going to get better. Even Tim DeRuder came out yesterday and said, yeah, he was really good. But he made a lot of mistakes, mistakes that you're going to make as a freshman. But his overall talent and his athletic ability is just so different than what Oregon's had that you put up with those mistakes early on because he's going to keep getting better. And if I'm being honest, it wasn't good, but I'm not worried about the offense too much. Anthony Brown did not play his best, and that's okay. This was his first start in, I believe it was over 700 days when you factor in his injuries and his transfer. The offensive line did not play well for the first three quarters, really. But they got better as the game went on. They wore Fresno State down. As I mentioned, Fresno State has a big defensive line. But they are sort of who we thought they would be. They're big. They're more powerful. They're going to be bigger and more powerful than a lot of the teams they play. But the truly talented members of that offensive line, they're not playing yet. And they're not playing because they're so young. Right now, Mario's rolling with the more experienced guys who are adequate, 
But this unit won't be truly elite for another year or two until the young kids are ready. And to those who say, well, this shouldn't be the case. That group should be better. Mario's an offensive line guy. The young guys should be playing. We were spoiled by Panay Sewell, who was an outlier, who started as a true freshman. True freshmen rarely start on the offensive line. He was a unicorn. That's not the case. And that doesn't mean that these young kids that are coming up aren't going to be really, really good. They're just not ready yet. And that doesn't mean they're not going to be ready in five weeks. I'm not saying it's two years out. But for game one, he went with the experienced guys. And I would not be surprised at all if throughout the next few weeks, we start seeing more of a rotation. They kept things very vanilla, very close to the vest. And that's going to change once we get past Ohio State, probably. You're going to start seeing more of a rotation. Now, as far as the receivers went, uh, who we, we heard so much about during fall camp as the season was you know, approaching, very clearly, this is the most talented wide receiver group on paper that Oregon's ever had. Mario even mentioned it after the game that Troy Franklin, for example, the guy many of us looked at to be the breakout star, he was actually injured during the week leading up to the game was not 100%. So look for him to make a big leap. Everything just kind of didn't click on Saturday for the offense. Just just sort of all the way around. Everything operated at about 80% of what I think it will be. And that's, again, that's a byproduct of a lot of things. First game, Fresno State's second game. The bottom line is they were, they were never going to acknowledge it. They're playing Ohio State this week. They were not going to run an offense that looked close to what we will see probably the rest of the season they want to keep things buttoned up so they can hit Ohio State with everything that they have never seen before because that's really the only way Oregon's going to have a chance to walk out of there with a win you have to go in element of surprise and show them everything you have not showed them before to give yourself the best chance and that you know that's the big question on people's minds is the overall execution of the offense which will actually lead me to the first question submitted in, which I'll get to right after this. It's that time of year again, and all eyes are turning to football as teams are back on the gridiron to start the football season. As always, Bet Online is your number one spot for all the pro and college football action this season. Get all the updated odds, props, and contests, including Online's biggest half-million-dollar NFL Mega Contest, and the world's largest $200,000 NFL Survivor Contest open now at Bet Online. Just head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today to receive your 100% welcome bonus. Take advantage of their opening day super promo. Just make a bet on the Thursday, September 9th season opener between the Super Bowl champion Buccaneers and the Dallas Cowboys. And if you lose, your wager will be refunded up to $25 for the new customers only when signing up and using the promo code NFL100. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet all your favorite sports. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. As I mentioned, today's episode is about answering your question, and the first one cuts straight to that question. This is from RG777. He says, I was at the game on Saturday, and I heard chatter from some fans that Mario's still keeping his offense very basic. Do you think that he's not giving Joe Moorhead free reign to run things the way that he wants to? And this was the big talking point on Sunday 
after the game when you if you went to the message boards and and just read the comments is people still have this perception that Mario is just ruling with an iron fist not letting Joe Moorhead run his offense at all and I, I think that's a very narrow way to look at things because remember Oregon on Saturday their offense didn't look anything like it did even last year in Moorhead's first year when he had hardly any time to install his offense and to this my, my thought has always been this and we'll never know no, no one's ever going to truly know what's happening behind the closed doors there a Joe Moorhead would not have come to Oregon if he thought that he would not be able to run his system he is a very respected coordinator around the country. Probably 98% of programs would take him in a heartbeat. He had plenty of choices of where to go. He came to Oregon knowing who Mario was. They, they, they set through probably many rounds of interviews. There was no hidden agenda. There was no secrets of what it was going to be. B, after going through a season with Mario last year, granted it was different, he would not have chosen to come back this year had he thought, mm, that didn't go well. I wasn't able to do what I want to do. Contracts are just pieces of paper. You can get out of them. Joe could have gone somewhere else if he wasn't happy here. He seems happy. He came back. Joe Moorhead is running this offense. Now, he's doing so with what he has. The offensive line, not quite there yet. The receiving group, a little bit dinged up a quarterback that is limited. Anthony Brown is not a great thrower of the football. He's got dynamic legs. He still makes some poor decisions. Mentally, we don't know where he's at. And the true talent, true freshman, not ready yet. Joe Moorhead did on Saturday what they had to do to win the game. Him and Mario went into that, that game with a plan they executed. They didn't execute great. Again, if Kayvon Thibodeau doesn't get hurt when they're already up 14-0, this game probably ends closer to a 45-10, 45-17, and a lot of these questions that people have aren't even being asked. I think maybe not this week against Ohio State. Maybe from an execution standpoint, it won't look great. I guarantee you it will not be near as vanilla because they don't have a choice. They have to open it up then we're going to start to see for the rest of the year what it looks like. The next question is actually the next series of questions come from Big Love Ken. I love this. He wrote in five questions. So Ken, I'm going to, I'm going to get to all of them. And we're just going, to, just going to go right off the top. Uh, the first question is, the quarterback situation, how do I think it plays out the rest of the season? Which quarterback, Ty Thompson, Jay Butterfield, Robbie Ashford, is most likely to be QB1, if Brown drops down to QB2. Well, I, I've said this. If you've listened to the show, it's Ty Thompson. It's going to be Ty Thompson. They don't have a choice. He's too good, and you cannot risk losing him to the transfer portal if something were to happen and he does not become QB2. That is not a reflection on Ty. No one has said this in particular, but he's a five-star quarterback. Look at the look at the, the history of that position now factor in the ease at which players can enter the portal. You do not take any risks. Quarterback number two is Ty Thompson. If something were to happen to Brown, be it an injury or very poor play, 
Ty Thompson is the guy. Now, I said last week that I thought we would learn more about the future of the quarterback position from the Fresno State game than any other game. It was not a great start for Anthony Brown in the starting quarterback position at Oregon. But I think I think he ended up grading out and probably playing better than what us average fans are seeing. I don't think he did anything to necessarily lose his job. I don't think he did anything to solidify it. I think we're probably actually in the same boat. I don't know what we're going to learn at Ohio State. If he comes out and throws for 400 yards and keeps Oregon in the game, he's your guy until the end of the season. Nothing will change that. If he starts out 10 for 22 for 100 yards and a couple interceptions, then the wheels are in motion. And you come home from the next week. I would not be surprised at that point if Anthony starts, but he gets pulled real quick in an attempt to uh, make it look like, hey, we're bringing in the backups because we're playing Stony Brook and we're probably ahead by 30. Then, depending on how Ty plays that game, we're looking at a potential move at that point. Next question, he says, any possible position that I could see a transfer come on? based on the way Oregon's recruiting. I think the obvious answer is wide receiver. The way Oregon's recruiting their 2021 class, the 2022 class has four guys that all look elite, blue chip uh, caliber players. You can only have so many wide receivers on the field at one time. And uh, and Oregon's brought in a few guys over the past few years that have yet to sniff the field. Uh, you know, I don't I don't I don't want to give out names cuz I don't that's not fair to the players themselves. But that is the position where we'll probably see one or two, maybe even three guys transfer out at some point during the season or after next or after the season, just from a pure number standpoint. And this is where Mario, having been in the SEC and seen the way that the truly elite programs recruit, comes in handy. He knows how to sit down with these guys and say, the odds are you're probably not going to play here. And we want to help you get to a position, get to a place where you can see the field and start to fulfill your potential. We've seen it around the country. The Washington-UCLA debacle where they were just basically passing quarterbacks back and forth and the schools were unwilling to let a player transfer inside the conference and then it just leads to this really poor look for the program. Mario is the opposite of that. Every guy who has transferred has had nothing but glowing things to say about the way Oregon handled it. Mario is the first guy to call up schools that that player wants to go to, give glowing recommendations. He doesn't care. He's not going to stop someone from going where they want to go, even if it were to be in conference, because he knows that's not how you build a reputation. And the recruiting is the lifeblood of the program. Players' uh, happiness, the reputation inside the building, that is what keeps the train rolling. Players talk to each other. Players talk to high school players. If Oregon gets a reputation as a place that, well, we went there, we tried to leave, they made it super difficult, guess what? Blue chip guys are not going to want to come here anymore. So they're not going to do that. So that's a little bit of a side tangent. Uh, but the, the point is, I, I think, yes, transfers have to come this year in order for Oregon to take even a remotely full class. And we're not going to get into the recruiting numbers. That, that's a whole other whole other subject but Oregon's probably looking at eight to ten guys having to transfer or leave the program 
before the 2022 season starts. That, that's just a numbers thing. It just has to happen. And I would expect probably the position, like I said, that be hit the hardest will be that wide receiver position. Kev's next question, roster management. Is it balanced? And this is where it's hard. Again, last season, not having the ability to go through a spring ball, a fall ball, heading in, having a full season, I think really hurt a lot of programs in terms of how they're managing having the super seniors eligible to come back. These guys who can come back since last year didn't technically count towards eligibility. I think that's hurting a lot of programs. I think it probably hurt Oregon worse than maybe other schools because they had so many guys opt back in. And, you know, the reality is Mario is trying to flip the program. He's trying to flip the roster from guys that were either here before him or maybe his first season when didn't have a full grasp of recruiting. They're not fully where they want to be. And he has not, even though it's his fourth year, this is not fully his roster yet. So I think we're seeing, especially on the offensive line, like we said, there is a big balance here between guys that are truly ones that they've had the chance to scout and evaluate and recruit for a couple of years then they sign over the last two two seasons. That's where things are headed. But they also have this group of older players that you have to show they've earned the respect, they've earned the, the right to play, probably the right to start. And I think we're still another two seasons away from the roster fully looking like Mario wants. Again, eight to ten players are probably going to have to transfer out of this program at the end of the season. Those are going to be guys that you then fill in the way they're recruiting with eight to 10 blue chip players. So now you're starting to see that ratio go up. And if, if you're, if you're not aware, a blue chip ratio just means essentially any player that's ranked four stars or five stars coming out of high school is a blue chip player. You want your goal is to have your roster filled with as many blue chip players as you can. And Mario's already taken it. I believe when they, when they started, when he came in, the roster was like 23rd in the country in terms of the amount of blue chip players on the roster. Now they're up to eighth. So it's happening. It's just going to take a little bit longer than what people maybe want to realize. Because, you know, when Chip Kelly came in and revolutionized everything and the program took off after a couple seasons, that was all schematic. That had nothing to do with the players that were already in there. He did it primarily with the guys that were already on the roster. Now, yeah, he added a DeAnthony Thomas, which obviously, you know, was was a, a game changer in terms of, uh, you know, bringing in a skill guy that is so far elite and, and better than anyone they had. But, you know, in 2010, 2009, 2010, when they went to the Rose Bowl and they went to the BCS championship game, that had nothing to do with with him coming in and, and completely overhauling recruiting or anything. That was just a revolutionary offensive scheme and a philosophy that the the game the rest of the country was not prepared to handle. What Mario's doing is different. He's not trying to do anything schematically that hasn't been done before. He wants to build this roster and this program from the inside out. The strength program, the players he's recruiting. And that takes a lot longer to do. It's not a one-year fix. It's not a two-year fix. He's looking four, five, six years down the road with every recruiting class he brings in in an attempt to make Oregon a true national championship contender when they do get back to the playoffs. 
when Oregon played in the, in the playoffs in 2014, yeah, they beat Florida State. That Florida State team was a mess, and it took five turnovers in the second half for things to get, to get out of hand. When they played Ohio State, you really saw, okay, Oregon's not there. They don't have the roster buildup to hang with an Ohio State. They didn't have the bodies. They didn't have the size. Mario wants the size. He wants the power. Then, when you have that, and you're able to put out 22 guys on the field, on offense and defense, that look like a Big Ten school, that look like an SEC school, then you're fully ready to play. And you're ready to go to battle with those big-time programs. That's why Oregon's not ready yet to walk into Ohio State and go punch for punch. They're going to have to be a little bit exotic this year. But next year, when they go down south to play Georgia, they're going to be a little bit more prepared. And then the year after that, they're going to be even more prepared. So is the roster balanced? Not yet. But it's not from mismanagement. It's from trying to do things the right way, the long way, the slow way. And it's not fun for fans when it doesn't work. But overall, that's how it needs to be. We're going to have more questions from Kev here in just a second. We're going to take one more quick break. We'll be right back. Hey, exciting news. Our pod is partnering with PlayActionPools.com this season to bring some interactive fun to the sport we love most. You'll be able to get in on the action with our PlayActionPools.com football pick'em challenge, which is open to everyone. Here's how it works. Sign up for the contest. Believe football pick them at playactionpools.com and then get your picks in each week. We're going to select the 10 highest profile games of the week between the NFL and college football. Whoever gets the most picks correct each week will win a pair of electric sunglasses and a pair of DC shoes. Again, go to playactionpools.com and sign up for the contest. Believe, that's B-L-E-A-V, football pick them. And if you plan on hosting your own football contest, go to playactionpools.com today. They've got Survivor, Pick'em, as well as cool sportsbook-style concepts called Build Your Own Bankroll. Playactionpools.com, your new home for all your office sports pools. Kevin's last question, he says, From fun, my prediction for the rest of the season, wins and losses, which players do I see maybe behind in the depth chart that could emerge as starters by the end of the season. So I haven't changed a whole lot after Saturday. I still think 11 and one is completely within, within reason because as we saw the rest of the PAC 12 North looks like a flaming bag of garbage. The PAC 12 South, although looking a lot better, we still don't know a lot. USC had a really good win over San Jose state. That San Jose State team is going to be right there with Fresno State at the end of the year for the best Mountain West team. But they won, I believe, 30-7. to Didn't learn a whole lot about them. Obviously, UCLA is the talk of the conference coming out. I have said for a long time that that, to me, is the toughest game Oregon's going to play on the schedule. If I'm picking right now, I don't think Oregon walks into UCLA and gets a win. The way both teams looked on Saturday, things are going to look different. UCLA might look worse. Oregon might look better. Right now, I would still say 10-2 and two is should be the floor for this team, but this also maybe the ceiling, if that makes sense. <laughs> maybe a little Michael Jordan, the ceiling is the floor, or the ceiling is the roof, or whatever he said. 9-3 and three could certainly happen. 11-1 and one could happen. We don't know a whole lot 
So if I had to sit here right now, I still say 10 and 2. I think they lose to Ohio State. I think they lose to UCLA. Washington's still going to be a tough game, even though they lost to Montana, which by the way, we should be celebrating that fact. But it's still a tough game. It's still a rivalry game on the road, tough weather. Utah is still going to be a very tough game on the road. But I I just I I look at that Utah team and I'm not quite ready to say yet that they're prepared to take down Oregon this year. I just I think by the time Oregon gets there, they'll be humming on all cylinders. And I just don't think Utah has quite enough to hang with it. So I'm going to say 10 and 2 as we sit here today. Maybe we talk again in a few weeks and I might have a different answer. Uh, Now, as far as guys behind on the depth chart, uh, I really do think that at some point throughout the season, uh, Dante Thornton, the other true freshman wide receiver, uh, the one that came in during the spring, I think he's going to start stepping in. He played a lot on Saturday, but I really think when you watched him out there on Saturday, no catches, but his size and his fluidity it just looks real different than anybody else. So I wouldn't be surprised if by the end of the year, he's really moved up. Uh, the other name, he didn't play on Saturday as far on defense. He may have gotten in for some special teams. Uh, but with Drew Mathis out now at linebacker, I really think Keith Brown is in line to start seeing 10 to 15 snaps per game going forward. After Mathis went out in the first quarter on the play after Thibodeau, I believe, uh, Justin Flo and Noah Sewell played every snap of the game on defense that won't work you can't do that if you're going to have a a season where you're going to try to you know make some noise there's no way those guys can play every game so I believe on the the organizational chart that came out yesterday Keith Brown is now second right behind Flo so I think he's going to really step up and start seeing uh start seeing more action and then again on the offensive line they only went six deep on Saturday Jackson Powers Johnson got in when Alex Forsyth went down with cramps uh, for a couple plays, did fine. Both the snaps were right on target, looked great when he's going in. I still think he is probably the first in line of those true freshman linemen that will play. And then Kingsley will also probably play as well. So you're looking at a few of the 2021 guys that are, are in line, didn't have a huge role on Saturday, but those are the guys that are going to start stepping up and being ready to play. And uh, last question, uh, this is Otson Lover 8 Now, this is an interesting question. It says, if C.J. Verdell wanted to come back next season, would you let him if you're Mario Cristobal? Now, this is tough because this, again, goes back to that roster management question. C.J. did not play very much at all during the first half on Saturday. Not really sure if that was more of a schematic thing where they, they wanted Travis Dye to get more of the carries if they were just trying to keep C.J., from getting dinged up that's quite the history of being dinged up but when he really got the run late in the third quarter early in the fourth quarter it was a reminder of just how good he is he was Oregon's best player on Saturday probably him and Johnny Johnson so if he decided to come back next year which I don't think there's any chance he will he is a running back he has had a history of injuries he needs to get to the NFL now and make some money before his body takes on too much if he wanted to come back I think you probably I think Mario would have to have a tough conversation because there are guys waiting in the wings I think from a roster management standpoint you have to look at the numbers and honestly I don't think Mario I don't think he would tell him you can't come back but it would be a a conversation where it's hey the best thing for you is to go on to the NFL and try to make 
a living, try to make a roster spot. And the best thing for the program would be for him to move on as well. That's why this season, he's going to be vital. If he can run like he did in the fourth quarter on Saturday for the rest of the season, Oregon's going to be in a good spot. So as I mentioned for Thursday's episode, I'm uh, going to have a special guest on, uh, a beat writer for Ohio State, uh, to talk about the game on Saturday. And look, a lot of things can be have been said about Oregon's performance against Fresno State. Ohio State did not look great on their opening game. They played thir- last Thursday at Minnesota. Took a big second half for them to sort of pull away at the end. But nothing about that game uh, led me to believe that they're unbeatable. I mean, Oregon's going to have to play a lot better. But this is probably their best chance to go in and get Ohio State in all the times they've played in, in the past you know, 15, 20 years. Oregon can get them. Whether or not they do, it's going to be a lot up to the execution of the offense. Thibodeau's health it, is that ankle 90%, 80%, 100%. We won't know. If he's able to go, though, and really be an effective, almost 100% Thibodeau, I think that defense is going to really keep Oregon in. Ohio State's got the best receiving core in the country. It's not a question. It's not even debatable. Getting Jamal Hill back, very helpful. DJ James back, very helpful. And then if Oregon's offense can even operate 30% better than they did this past Saturday, they're going to be right there. They're going to be right there. I still don't think they pull it out, but it should be in line for a game where we walk away saying, okay, that's more of the Oregon team that we thought we would get, and now let's go take on the rest of the season. As always, please subscribe and download wherever you get your podcasts from. Normally, as I mentioned, Monday, Thursday, apologize for this week being a little bit late, but uh, getting back on the horse and uh, we'll be back Thursday. Really excited about the episode. I think we're going to learn a lot about that Ohio State team. So again, uh, hope everyone was staying safe out there. Hope you got to make it out to Autzen where you were able to hear finally Don Essig in that new sound system. God, that sounded great. We are able to hear Don belt out these fantastic words. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.